Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by a SEPAD fellow, which is very exciting. Joined by Dr. Hannes Baumann, lecturer in politics at the Department of Politics at the University of Liverpool. Hannes has written extensively on Beirut, on the economic dimensions of, of events in Beirut, and as many of you know, he is the author of Citizen Hariri, Lebanon's neoliberal reconstruction that was published by Hearst in 2016. And it's a wonderful read. And for those of you that haven't read it, I urge you to do so as soon as you get chance. Hannes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. And thanks for inviting me and uh, on these uh, podcasts, which are a great initiative. And I learn a lot about uh, colleagues and how they work from, from the podcast. Me too, and I think that's one of the best things about it for me. I get to talk to people whose work I admire and people whose whose work I've been reading for, for years, and it's great to talk to them about what makes them tick, and I look forward to doing that with you uh, over the next 20 minutes or so, Hannes. So do I. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So can you tell us what got you interested in, in Beirut, in, in Rafik Hariri, and, and the Middle East more broadly, please? Okay, so um, the Middle East more broadly, I think it was sort of interactions in uh, in school with with um, um, fellow um, students from the Arab countries. Kind of got an interest in there, and then as an undergraduate, uh, took courses in Middle East politics at, at LSE with uh, Professor Kirsten Schulze, um, who and that was just very inspiring. So after. Um, uh, so I joined uh, SOAS for a master's, School of Oriental and African Studies in Middle East Politics. And then uh, after that, uh, traveled to Damascus in uh, 2004, that would have been, uh, to study Arabic. Right. Uh, which was a very interesting experience. It was a very interesting time yeah, uh, uh, to be in Damascus uh, because... It had really opened up. There was uh, a large community of uh, people coming to study the language. Um, and what's really interesting is that I think a lot of these people then afterwards uh, sort of became spokespeople for Syria. But that's a sort of slightly different story. They, they, they really um, um, became, uh, kind of knew the country quite well. Uh, and and then kind of could convey that that that, that knowledge of the country once uh, the conflict once the war started there, uh, and I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. Mm. However, when I was there uh, in February two thousand and five, uh, I was um, sitting trying to figure out a uh, proposal to do a PhD in politics, and I initially thought about doing something on Syria, but then. Um, Tragically, uh, the assassination of Rafiq Hariri happened in Beirut. Yeah. And uh, that sort of got me interested in the person. I was there on 14th of March uh, at the large demonstration to um, demand the withdrawal of Syrian troops. And so um, what interested me was less sort of who killed him and the crime, although these are, of course, interesting questions. That was the focus at the time. Yeah. What interested me more was how uh, sort of wealth was leading to power in this case of Rafiq Hariri. And, um, you know, it's not 
I think that happens to a lot of people who work on the region. Um, it's not, we don't start off with uh, sort of uh, rigorous uh, methodological case study choices. Uh, you know, something interests us, and then usually there is a reason to kind of pursue it, and we sort of um, rationalize it in terms of political science uh, methodologies, etc. So this is what happened. Yeah, I, I found the I found the the person. Uh, but more of the person, the kind of phenomenon uh, and how that that person could come to power, that was what interested me. Right. So I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. Not the person, but the phenomenon of, of Hariri. That's that's really interesting. Just to check, you were in Damascus or Beirut on March? I was in Damascus, but I traveled to Beirut uh, sort of regularly. And, sure. um, yeah, that was always an interesting experience because, of course, the two cities uh, are so, um, you know, they're so almost two poles um, in terms of political freedom, political repression, um, but also sort of calm and culture. I mean, they, they really belong together in many ways. I mean, people who've, who've lived in the in the in the in the area uh, might appreciate um, yeah kind of what I mean by that. So you know we were. I was traveling uh, between them quite a lot, and and so I was in in Damascus. I was based in Damascus, but visited Beirut when that demonstration happened. And what are your recollections from both March 14, 2005, and also that that period broadly? Well, what really struck me um, about the March 14 demonstration, uh, which was sort of presented a little bit like uh, the Arab. you know, the demonstrations of the what came to be called the Arab Spring, uh, sort of mass popular uprisings uh, and sort of a, a really a breath of fresh air and breaking the wall of fear that Syria had imposed on Lebanon. So I think that was certainly true. But there was also other things that I noticed, which was that um, there was still a prevalence of sectarian symbols mm. at these marches and a prevalence of um, pictures of sectarian leaders who were highly problematic. So I think what turned out late, you know, it, it, it sort of became apparent to some people, to Lebanese, it became apparent fairly quickly, but uh, to, to many other people later on, is that it did not bring a fundamental change of uh, Lebanese politics, although it was often put in those terms as sort of the sects coming together against Syrian oppression, etc. Yeah. Um, it was true at some, to, to, to some extent, but um, unfortunately, because it was also led, manipulated by uh, specific uh, elites, it didn't fundamentally change, t- change Lebanese politics. And I think that was already um, apparent on, on March 14th, 2005. And what about in Syria then? When you returned back to Damascus, what was the what was the response like there? Um, it's, well, it was interesting. I mean, Syria was not the place to necessarily talk politics very much, and so sure. I, yeah. maybe I was a bit too timid. I, I sort of uh, maybe avoided it a little. But um, you know, the response back then was, uh, you know, those ungrateful uh, Lebanese. They were fighting. We ended their civil war. Um, you know, there was, an, there was an element of that. Uh, there was also an element of, um, you know, admiration for what was happening in, in, in Lebanon, but maybe that wasn't uh, expressed uh, as openly. 
Um, so I think, yeah, that, that was broadly, that was the, the response. Interesting. As far it's... as I remember it, but I'm sure there was a whole range of wider responses. Yeah, sorry, I realize I'm asking you to, to go back 15 years or so. Um, <laughs> I think we can forgive you uh, a couple of slips of yeah. memory there, Hannes. Yeah. Just this once, perhaps. Um, <laughs> so then you, you returned to, to the UK to continue with this, your studies, and you, uh, right. you did your PhD. Mm-hmm. And and that was at SOAS as well, was it? That was at SOAS, yes. Yeah, and, and that uh, later became the, the book. That later became the book. So the process of uh, researching the, uh, the, the, the PhD took quite a long time, uh, and writing up took actually even longer. Um, partly that is, I mean, you know, at the time we were still allowed to study for our PhD however long we wanted, and... I would say I took I took advantage of that. Uh, I think from starting to the final, you know, until everything is is is, 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 is done was I think seven years. Right. Um, I don't recommend that for a moment to anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, I think it allowed me to you know learn, try to improve a language that I wasn't mastering at the time. I still don't fully master it, but, you know, I could I could engage with it and, and push that forward. If you just have the four-year time limit, you just have to be much more cautious with what you're doing. Mm. And, you know, I sort of, I as I said, I studied what I was interested in, and um, I didn't necessarily um, have some kind of methodologically rigorous research design or something. I knew what I wanted to, to, to look at. But um, it it you know I think sometimes I feel with with PhDs in politics it can be a little bit by painting by numbers because that's what the methodology we have so you go and do that and um, I think mine was much a little bit more free flowing and also when you do the, the the field research you just have to go and see what you find to yeah. a certain extent. And uh, I think that was maybe also partly one of the reasons why it took so long. So I spent a year in Beirut in 2007-2008. And that was doing your fieldwork? That was doing the fieldwork, yeah. Excellent. So can we talk a little bit about that then, Hannes, please? I mean, you've mm. got this... You got this wonderful book that is so rich, so well written, and so... It's... It's dense, and I say that in a positive way, not in a negative way. It's dense. It's it's so rich with with detail and and information. What? Yeah. How did you go about doing that? We, you, you have so much material in there. I mean, mm. What was it that you set out to do? You say that you you didn't really have a, a methodological approach. Perhaps yeah. um, it it might be worth as well just adding a, a a little synopsis of the book for anyone who's not mm. read it yet, please, as well. Right. So um, the, the the sort of puzzle is, uh, in a sense, how uh, and why uh, someone like uh, Rafik Hariri could emerge as a leader in Lebanon. He was neither a militia leader uh, during the civil war, nor was he from one of the sort of feudal families. So what was he? And the, the interesting thing is that um, he became wealthy uh, through emigrating to Saudi Arabia in the 1960s. In the 1970s, he he won several large-scale construction contracts uh, in Saudi Arabia from the from the from the king, and then 
took this, went back to um, Lebanon in the early 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, and then after 1982, leveraged that, that wealth um, to become uh, uh, an actor and a, uh, a representative of the Saudi king in the Lebanese civil war. So you have these two hats on, first of all, being a wealthy billionaire uh, and also a philanthropist, a philanthropist in Lebanon, and on the other hand, being involved in the diplomacy of uh, Lebanon of the civil war. And so um, I then looked at the post-war reconstruction, which was in many ways driven not so much by Hariri himself, I mean, that's one of the insights, but also the network of technocratic experts around him. And I look at two things, two aspects in particular. One of them is um, the reconstruction of central Beirut, uh, which I interpret as a sort of neoliberal um, urbanism of, 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 of urban mega projects. And the other one is uh, the pegging of the exchange rate, uh, which again, sort of was meant to um, lead to investor confidence, make Lebanon competitive internationally. Um, and so it follows a certain neoliberal logic. Mm. Um, and at the same time, um, you have a sort of monopolist who comes in, uh, Hariri, um, which <laughs> yeah. kind of violates a lot of these ideas of the free market that's supposedly underpinned neoliberalism. And I played around with these ideas a lot, and I thought, you know, I, I just felt that um, that is actually inherent in neoliberalism. So what is neoliberalism? And I see it as a class project. And then if we look at it from that perspective, what sort of class did Hariri represent? And here uh, I got really interested in the idea of Gulf capital, or Khaliji capital, as Adam Hania called it, uh, and the interaction with 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 the Lebanese uh, political economy, um, and so that's that's basically the story that I tell. And as I said, you know, I I I wasn't sure I was going to find you know what I was going to find looking at Hariri, and in the end I ended up with this with a story about uh, Gulf investors and the I want to say almost a form of dependency of the Lebanese economy uh, on. The wider diaspora, yeah. but uh, on 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 the Gulf in particular, and that goes back to my my slightly earlier question that was predicated on this this comment that it's so rich and has so much mm, so mm. much information. So how did you go about it? How did you go about telling all these different stories and and bringing together? Uh, I guess the the story of Hariri, his own experience, mm. the the regeneration of Beirut, the the Khaliji capital, the role of the diasporas. I mean, what were you doing in Beirut for that year? I guess <laughs> I was uh, like a uh, a squirrel, <laughs> right? And okay. I, I I I recommend that uh, that deep uh, and profound methodological insight to any PhD student who does field research. Uh, which is to to just collect anything you can, uh, and Beirut is very rich for that because, and I've, I've found that now that that I've sort of done some research uh, in in other uh, Arab countries uh, as well. Beirut is very rich because first of all, everyone talks to you about politics. Mm. Secondly, there are endless uh, there are endless newspapers, uh, there are endless uh, reports by think tanks. Uh, and so that's, I think, what makes that richness, and that's what made it a such a congenial place. And that's why that's why so many people still go to 
uh, Beirut for research because it's such a congenial place to do that kind of thing. Um, of course, arguably, then it is, becomes over-research, but that's a different different story. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it really was uh, just doing interviews. But I think some of the best insights came from informal conversations. And so what ended up happening is that a lot of the documentation comes from newspapers, uh, etc. But the contextualization, understanding what all that stuff actually means, comes from these informal conversations or interviews or sure. uh, that kind of thing. One of the things that I, I like best about the book is that it tells different stories, that, mm. that you can read it and, and be looking, say, to, to get the story of Hariri. Mm. But that you also get the story of this Khaliji capital, but mm. you also then get a, a broader geopolitical picture, and you get a picture mm. of, of sectarian politics, if you will. Yeah. I mean, the sectarian politics was interesting because, again, I came across an interesting puzzle. Is that I felt that Hariri initially wasn't a... I mean, there's, there's no such thing as a non-sectarian actor in Lebanese politics. But sure, yeah. he wasn't interested in acting like a typical Zaim, a typical sectarian leader, initially. Um, and in the early 1990s, uh, with the sort of first elections that were happening in 92, for instance, some of the Sunni community actually held that against him uh, and felt that he wasn't pulling his weight. You know, he was... Yeah. Prime Minister, uh, but he wasn't he wasn't acting in the interest of the community enough. And of course, he was styling himself very much in contrast to other sectarian actors, the militia leaders in particular. You know, he was the person reconstructing, not the person pushing yeah. these divisive ideologies. Right. But what happened then, from between 1996 and 2000, is that uh, the political pressure on him, especially from Syria and its allies, became greater that it became more difficult for him to pursue his economic projects, especially the reconstruction of central Beirut, the, the Solidaire project. Mm. And so he wanted to win elections. And how do you win elections in Lebanon? You become that sectarian leader. So I, I, I wove into the story of how the Hariri Foundation became more politicized and became more of a vehicle for electoral politics as well. And, and that happened in the late 1990s. What do you think this type of approach that isn't directly looking at sectarian politics reveals about sectarian politics and and the sectarianization of life in Lebanon? Because it seems to me that it's, it's telling a different story from a completely different angle, but an incredibly important one. Mm. I, I think, uh, without theorizing it too much here, but I think there is just a sort of inescapable quality about sectarianism. Um, and it was Hariri coming from kind of the side of capital, having to behave more like a, a sectarian leader and being disciplined into that. And then later on uh, in the project that I was actually doing uh, for the workshop that, that you convened in uh, Lancaster, um, I also looked at uh, trade unions. Yeah, and how uh, for them uh, that became sort of an inescapable issue because the trade unions had been the, the sort of one and, and, and sort of strongest non-sectarian force uh, in in Lebanon or at least potentially non-sectarian. Yeah, and so I looked at how in the 1990s they became uh, a sort of 
op- the main opposition to Hariri's economic project, but also to the logic of sectarianism. Um, and how they were sort of sidelined and actually coerced into um, dependency on sectarian parties again. Um, I, I think that story uh, starts maybe from a slightly idealized picture of the trade unions. Um, there is the PhD by Leah Buchater, who, who wrote the history of uh, the trade unions and actually, what, what comes across is that they were never a purely non-sectarian force. There was always the attempt to undermine them. There was always sectarian politics in Lebanese trade unions. But however that may be, uh, I think that the, the wider point is that the sectarian politics is inescapable uh, stands. And I think we find the same, again, the same dilemmas now when we look at the you stink, uh, you know, in, in the wake yeah. of the, uh, the trash crisis, uh, at various uh, electoral alliances, um, it, it's just very difficult to, to to move away from it and and to pro- present an alternative. But that alternative is always there. It's also presented by um, various sort of policy constituencies. Uh, the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies, for instance, right? They say, okay, yeah. let's let's look at the let's look at the issues and and how we can overcome that. Uh, mm. the, you know the, the policy challenges, um, and and so this, there's always this uh, this struggle between the non-sectarian and the sectarian, and and it's very difficult to to, to get away from it. Yeah, there's there's certainly a stickiness to to sect-based identities, mm-hmm. and and that stickiness seems to pervade pervade all aspects. And while yeah. there's there's a real real focus on on politics and security, what I like about about your work, not just in in um, in the Hariri book, but also the article that you mentioned that was published in Global Discourse, but also yeah. the other pieces that you've done, you're you're painting a different picture. And right. you're using different approaches to, to, whether directly or indirectly, get at what are fundamental political issues that are challenges to to the Lebanese state. Yes. Yeah. I I think uh, it it came from actually not studying sectarian politics, right? To study the the political economy. But again, yeah. Uh, what, what's true for, for for Lebanese politicians is also true for for that kind of research. Is that you know sectarianism is of course inescapable. It's the inescapable reality. Um, and and I'm sure you have the same in your project, and you're doing the right thing in saying I'm not going to just get people together who study sectarianism, but we're going to see how sectarianism is being experienced and and and, and reproduced in. You know, security, political economy, um, the everyday, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. aspects you know you look at, it's it's um, reproduced and contested as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. of the other interesting things about the political economy side that whilst that there is scope for the stickiness of sect-based identities to remain yes. and to resonate, there's also opportunities to to transcend that stickiness. Exactly, especially because. Um, the um, the political eco- you know sectarianism has its own political economy, mm. and here Reinhard Leinders' book was really uh, the the main the book to read for post-war Lebanon, uh, in the way that uh, this kind of division of spoils he called it the spoils of truth, 
to see um, uh, how that was being divided up by by Lebanese elites. Um, and a lot of the things that we see now, a lot of the civil society organizing uh, against, you know, the the, 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 the trash crisis, etc., uh, is exactly in reaction to uh, to that kind of politics and the public policy failures that it brings about. Yeah. It's it's fascinating, Hannes, and we could keep talking about this for, for a very long time, but I feel we've taken up a great amount of your time already, so I, I must let you go. I must say thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. It's been absolutely fascinating, really, really interesting to, to get a, a different tale of, of sect-based politics and, and the role of political economy in all of this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sam, and thank you for your work on uh, on the SEPA project. It's, uh, it's really... Uh... Um, it's really fascinating uh, because, you know, if you look at sectarianism, it just becomes so all-encompassing, and it's, it's a really great initiative. So, thanks for your work. Well, thank you. You're you're too kind. But uh, as always, I appreciate your your insights, and I look forward to, to catching up some point soon. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Simon. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.